Well, I, uh, I titled the sermon Saving Saul, but I want to set things up a little bit for this book. Um, the theme that I'm giving for the overarching uh, view of Romans is unashamed of the gospel. And that's easy to see, right? Romans 1.16, I am unashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Now, I want to emphasize that. For all, but who believe? That's important to always keep those together. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, right? So it's, here we are. Praise God for the work of God in the gospel that reached beyond just the Jews, but to the ends of the earth, to the nations. Good news, powerful, changing gospel. What do I want to do, because Romans is so vast, and uh, to try to take it on all at once would be um, uh, too much, I think, uh, for this preacher. So I'm going to break it into four parts. We're going to do Romans 1 through 5, and then we'll probably jump into a minor prophet and maybe study Nahum a little bit. And then we're going to come back and, and do Romans 6 through 8, and then we'll maybe jump over and do, I don't know, another minor prophet. And uh, so we're going to go Old Testament and New, but, but heavy in the New and a little bit shorter in the Old in between these, just to get a little bit of a break in between as we study through these verses. Romans 1 through 5, I've titled, Revealing God's Righteousness. It's amazing as you study the book of Romans, I would encourage you to read through it as many times as you can in the coming year. Um, you will see the word righteousness and unrighteousness show up constantly through this book. And it is a theme that is uh, significant. So, Romans 1 through 5, revealing God's righteousness. 6 through 8, the triumph of God's grace. 9 through 11, God's sovereign salvation. That is for sure the deep end of the pool. I can't wait to go there together with you. It is beautiful, glorious. And then Romans 12 through 16, the application of all of this teaching, the sum up of the gospel, then applied in our lives, applying God's righteousness. So that is our plan. Today, however, I want to begin by getting to know the author of the book a little better. And I thought there would be no better way to start a journey through the book of Romans than to go back and say, well, let's learn more about Saul. And uh, so we're going to look at Romans 1.1, but most of our time today is going to be in the book of Acts, uh, studying the conversion of Saul, saving Saul. So Romans 1.1, we'll study this more in depth next week, but Listen to how he begins his letter to the Romans. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, or a bond servant, or a slave, same word, doulos, of Jesus Christ, called, huge word there, significant word. We're going to see that built out in the book of Romans. Called, circle that, to be an apostle, one commissioned by Christ himself sent by Christ, and set apart, there's a, a familiar word, set apart, made holy, set apart, Leviticus, for the gospel of God. That is the, the work that he has been made holy to uh, be in employment of. It is his work. And so this is how he begins his letter. And then in classic Pauline fashion, there really is not a period there. He just keeps going. And it's unbelievable. And we're going to look at those verses next week. It's just a, a run-on sentence. There are many in, in Romans. They're beautiful run-on sentences. But today, I just want to start there 
And then I want to say, okay, when he says these words, where is he saying these words from? What is he remembering as he says these words to the Romans and to us today? Really, we want to get to know the man behind the letter. That's my goal today. Who is this man, Paul, who also goes by the name of Saul? Well, he was, he was born in Tarsus, which is a, a city that if you're born in this city, you are automatically a Roman citizen. So Paul is a Jew, a very devout Jew, a Jew of Jews, he would say. But he is also a Roman citizen, which gives him a unique uh, pedigree, as it were, to uh, the, the, the work that God has ordained for him to do as he brings him to salvation. All of this is ordained by God. He is a Pharisee of Pharisees, a man committed to the law. He would have likely had the entire Old Testament memorized, word for word, from memory, the whole Old Testament. He was a brilliant and trained, uh, brilliant scholar trained under Gamaliel, who was uh, a renowned rabbi of the day. You see him show up uh, in the trial early in the book of Acts of Peter and John. Um, he actually reasoned with the Sanhedrin not to um, punish and kill those men, but to release them and not oppose God. Remember, he was a voice of reason. He was Paul's mentor and uh, rabbi trainer. In fact, there, there was a list compiled by a secular group uh, years ago, and they ranked who they thought the most brilliant people in the history of the earth were. And Paul ranked in the top five. That was not among Christians. That was just, just surveying life, surveying the work, surveying his impact and uh, his brilliance. And we would say all of that to the glory of God, right? He was a man of fire and conviction. He was like Peter this way. He was never half-hearted. If he was going to do something, he was all in. Both feet, let's go. I love that about Paul. The challenge uh, that happens, though, is that he was a zealous defender of Judaism. Judaism, And uh, when Christianity came on the scene and Christ finished his work and the church began, he hated it because of its affront to what he understood was the truth of the word of God. And so he was willing to kill, to stamp out the church and made himself a very prominent lead figure in the persecution of the early church. We're going to see this unfold. Let me show you from the book of Acts, chapter 8, Saul's connection to the first martyr of the church, Stephen. Saul, it says, approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So think of this. Shortly after the church begins, begins to grow, and immediately they are attacked and assaulted. And one of the lead figures in this, even all the way back when Stephen was martyred, is Saul. He stood with authority over the brutal murder of Stephen, who was a devout follower of Christ and killed for his faith in Christ. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he would drag off men and women and commit them to prison. We learn in other places that he would beat them, and 
he would kill them. This is a murderous man. This is a terrorist of the church. He is violent, hostile, a hater of Christ and Christians. You've got to feel that. This is who this man is. And in all of this, he is convinced that he is serving God. He is totally convinced that he is actually doing God a favor when in fact he is coming against the people that God has saved and sent out. So on your sermon notes, you'll see a number of uh, points that we're going to move through here today. Let's go to Acts 9. Just follow along with me there. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Relentless hostility. Relentless hostility. So after chapter 8 finishes, we come into chapter 9, and it begins this way. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest. That's Caiaphas, right? It's the same one that had Jesus killed. He goes to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's the early reference to the church, believers, Christians, they referred to themselves as the way. Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul is not happy that he has launched a rebellion and, a, and an assault on believers in Jerusalem and has successfully scattered them. All but the apostles have been scattered. He's not happy with that. He wants to take it to its final, he, he wants to stamp out the church wherever it is. And so he must have heard that up in Damascus, there was a gathering of Christians and that they had found some, some, uh, some place to gather up there, some safe harbor from this persecution. And he says, you're not safe for me. I'm coming. Still breathing threats and murder. It's, this is the air that he breathes. Think of this. He is so obsessed with attacking and stamping out Christianity that he is, this is, He's breathing this. A man on fire, obsessed. He targets Damascus. This is kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Damascus is 150 miles north of Jerusalem. Well, why in the world would he care if there were Christians way up here? I mean, we're talking way here on the top corner of the map, all the way from Jerusalem down here. But he says, listen, if they're there, I'll get them. I'll go get them. He gets authority from Caiaphas, the high priest, with these letters probably sealed by the high priest himself to take these letters. And if anyone questions him, he says, just read that. I'm doing what I've been authorized to do. You take it up with the high priest if you have a problem. I want you to imagine Saul on his uh, five to six day journey there. If, if you know Saul, it wasn't six days. He was making a beeline for Damascus. It probably took him five days at most. And on his way there, just think of what's going through his mind. He's not new at this. He's been active persecuting, arresting, beating, and killing Christians. When I arrive in Damascus, I am going to drop the hammer on these Christians. How dare they come at the name of Yahweh? How dare they say that Jesus was God? Or the Messiah. I will put an end to this with an iron fist. I have authority. I'm going to land in here and I'm going to roll right over the top of these people and drag them back to answer for their crimes. 
before the high priest. That was his plan. But we know God had a different plan, didn't he? A remarkable salvation. Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 9. Watch how this unfolds. You've got to just see the heart of this man is set to go this direction. And God has a bit of an alteration to make. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And we learn later on in Acts 22, as he tells the account to others, this is about noontime. So he's made it uh, up there. It's probably the fifth day, maybe around noon. He's riding in, coming up on the approach to Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven flashed all around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice. Now, Some believe that he was riding a horse. I think that would make a ton of sense. If he's got authority and he wants to make time, he's likely on a horse. And so this light comes and knocks him to the ground, uh, probably off of his horse, just completely blows him down. And then he hears this voice. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me. Don't miss the me there. Not them. Saul, why are you persecuting them? No. Why are you persecuting me? This was a moment Saul would never forget. He would never be the same. He is grounded by God. Literally grounded by God. He is laying flat. What hit me? What is this? He cannot see because the brilliance of the glory of God is so bright. He has been blinded and grounded. And I think this moment was not a quick moment. I think this would have maybe stretched a bit. Would have maybe kind of slow motion processing. He was a brilliant man. His mind would have gone into warp speed. What is this? Who is this? Who is this voice? Could this be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob addressing me directly? Did God just blow me off of my horse? He concludes, he did. This is God. I know this because of the way he responds. He said, who are you, Curios, Lord? Who are you, Lord? He knows he is being addressed by God himself. This is deity who is addressing him. Now this response is going to radically alter Paul for the rest of his life. The response came, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And all of a sudden, things that he thought were completely separated came together. You see how significant this is? The Lord connects to Jesus. And he realizes he wasn't just a man. He just wasn't just a teacher. He wasn't just a miracle worker or a martyr. He is God. He is risen, and he is reigning. 
And then it all begins to fall into place, right? Just think, it's all true. Paul's mind has to be just, you know, the computer, like the CPU is maxing out here. It's all true. All of the things that these people have said, they're true. All of the people who have followed him, they're right. Paul, a man of the Old Testament who knew his scriptures, would have had verse after verse exploding like bombs going off in his mind, attaching to Christ. Think of the anticipation of the Old Testament, all of what we saw in Leviticus. He knew these verses well, and all of a sudden, all of Leviticus connects to Jesus. He sees the Messiah, and he sees Christ, and they all come together. It all is true. Jesus' fulfillment, Jesus' finished work, the gospel that Paul would have been so close in and around in Jerusalem, you would have had to live under a rock to not hear the gospel of what had happened, what had taken place. And most didn't believe it. Some did. Now Paul, Saul, he believes. He understands. It's all true. It's Jesus. But there would have been more, I think, that would have exploded into his mind at this point. A lot more. He would have seen the face of Stephen. Just before the final rock struck Stephen in the head and died, he would have seen the face of Stephen light up with glory as he saw his Savior, Jesus Christ. The face of Christ risen and exalted. He would have seen Stephen in his mind, and said, he was right. I'm responsible for the death of an innocent man. I stood in authority over his murder. It would have hit him with weight. And then the cries of all of the Christians that he has beat and killed and imprisoned and dragged off thinking the whole time that he was the one who saw and they were the fools who were blinded. Now all of a sudden, he's blinded, but he sees like he's never seen before. God has changed this man in an instant. And he looks at his hands and he sees the blood of the saints. I think there is a whole lot of processing taking place for Saul at this point. A lot. But one thing that is not uncertain for him is that Jesus is Lord. Is that it's true. The gospel is true. He sees it. He knows. And he believes. He embraces him. I, I feel that you can, you can catch all of this from his response as he gives the story in Acts 22. He says, in that account, he says, What shall I do, Lord? Okay, He's talking to Jesus in referring to him as the Lord. Master, I'm yours. I am submitted. I am your servant. Servant of Christ. I'm yours. Lead on. What do we do now? I'm all in. It's true. Jesus responds to him and says, Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Wow. He has been placed in contact with the risen Savior. 
He has been knocked flat on his back by the glory of Christ. And he has had his eyes opened and his heart changed. He is a new man. He has been saved. What an amazing account of salvation this is. From terrorist to apostle. In a moment. God can do that. God can do that. Saul's conversion is spectacular. If you just step back and look at how this unfolds, it's amazing. It is sudden and supernatural. Let's be clear. God does not need long periods of time to bring people to life. In fact, if you look at your own conversion story, there may have been a time where the Lord set the hook in your life and began to reel you to himself, draw you in. But there is for every believer a moment where you pass from death to life. And it happens in a moment. It is instantaneous. And that is the sudden and supernatural nature of God's saving work. He makes people live. He passes them from death to life, raises them from the dead. As we sing, you called my name. And what did I do? I ran out of that grave. I don't want this anymore. I don't want darkness. I love you. I see you. I'm yours. Lead on. What do I do now? The salvation of God meets us with sudden and supernatural grace. It is also a sovereign and irresistible grace. Let me explain these words. Saul has his heart hell-bent on destroying the church and killing Christians. God says, uh, no, I got another plan. Boom! Turns his head, changes his heart, makes him live. That is a sovereign work of God. God did not go to, to Saul and be like, hey, uh, hey buddy, um, here's the thing. I got this offer for you. Um, it's pretty good. It's going to involve some tough stuff. Would you be willing maybe if, I don't know, if, you're, if you want to, is that, do I have your permission? No, it wasn't that at all. He said, I choose you, I save you, I send you. You're mine. Live. God can do that. He is free to do that. And he did it right here. Irresistible. What do I mean by that? He opens Paul's eyes to the glory of Christ such that any resistance is overcome. Our inclination is to resist. We don't want light. We want the dark. We are fallen, sinful people, rebels at heart. We're not trying to beat down the doors of heaven. We're trying to run breakneck to the fires of hell. And, and God in his love and grace says, for all who experience salvation, at the point that he brings you to life, he says, I know you want all those things, but as soon as I show you my son, you're going to want none of those. And you, I'll make you an offer you can't refuse. I will make the glory of Christ look so good to your new heart that you will embrace him and run joyfully and willingly so. And so Saul did. He saw the glory of Christ. God does not save people against their will. He saves people over and through a will set free. That's exactly what we need. More on that in a minute. 
It is an atoning and effectual grace. The atonement of Christ was applied to Saul such that all of the sins that he had committed, Christ had paid for. Not in theory or theoretically or potentially, but actually. An actual definite payment of sin was made by Christ for Saul. And he was forgiven. It was effectual. An effectual grace. It wasn't just offered and held out, but it landed and brought life. It was a sealing and certain grace. We'll see this later on. God sealed him with the presence of his Holy Spirit and held him till his dying day. He persevered to the end. Ultimately, why? Because of God's sovereign grip that would not let him go. To the praise of his glorious grace. So is true of all of us. Now, we don't all have this experience. We're not typically riding our horse to Damascus when the Lord meets us in the gospel and grounds us and blinds us. And No, but I will say this. When you examine your conversion experience, there is a whole lot more happening than you ever realized. And the Bible opens our eyes to see this as we grow. We begin to say, oh, wow. Not, not did I see Jesus, but how did I see Jesus? With eyes to see him, not blinded eyes. How did I feel love for him when my heart was naturally hardened and opposed to him? The answer is God. God did that. God saved you. And you ran out of that grave. Hmm. You say, well, pastor, what about Paul's free will? We've we got we to gotta ask this question, don't we? Because especially in America, but, but in the West just generally and all around the world, this, this free will thing has kind of caught on the past hundred years or so. I hear a lot about free will, about human free will. But here's the weird thing, guys. I don't read a lot about it in the Bible. Do you? I, here's, here's what I would suggest this morning. The notion of human free will is far more philosophical than scriptural. We employ this notion to try to answer questions like the problem of evil. Or why is one person saved and another not? Well, it's free will, right? That's simple. It makes it, makes it just easy to just kind of move forward. Well, the, that's not how the Bible talks. Our job as believers is to be Bible people before we're philosophers of who we think God is or how he should work. We should listen to his word. And frankly, the notion of human free will after Genesis 2, it simply doesn't exist. Not the way that we would like to think it does. Now, let's be clear. We are free. We, we make decisions, right? Real decisions that have real consequences, and we are responsible for those decisions. However, the decisions we make are not as free as we think they are. We are actually making decisions as slaves of our desires. We are enslaved, friends. We are not free. Do we have ultimate self-determination? At the moment of choice, when 
the gospel rings out and Christ is presented before an unsaved person, at that moment, who is the ultimate decider of salvation? The person or God? The scripture says God. 10,000 times. God, 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 God saves. God saves. We are not sovereign in our salvation. God is. God is more free than we are free. And if we ever think that it's not that way, then we make ourselves God. We have to be so careful and precise in the way we understand the work of God in salvation. So let me just show you some verses that will help you hear this not from me. Don't listen to me. Don't think this is some ism. Hear this from the word of God because we're going to hear it from Paul over and over as we move through Romans. It's beautiful. We have an enslaved will, not a free will. We have eyes that are blinded, not open. We have a heart that is indeed hardened to God. This is how we are born. We are natural born sinners. Blind, spiritually lifeless and dead. Alienated, hostile to God. We hate the light. It's who we are as a result of the fall. What we need in salvation, first and foremost, is a will set free. We need eyes made to see and a new heart to love. That is what the gospel accomplishes through the power of the Spirit when God saves. Let me show you how this plays out. 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote this, the natural person, that's the unsaved person, the natural born sinner, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly, foolishness. And he goes on to say, it's not just that we don't accept it. We are unable to understand. He does not, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So when you hear the gospel preached in and of yourself, you will hear foolishness and folly unless God does something to change the equation. Why is this the answer in 2 Corinthians? Because the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? What Paul saw. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. How is it that Paul saw, though he was instantly blinded by the light of Christ? God. That's how. How is it that you chose to repent of your sins and trust Jesus as Lord? God. That's how. Of his own will, not our free will, but of his free will, of his own will, he made us alive, brought us forth by the word of truth, the gospel. You hear the echo there? The gospel writers, they knew this. This wasn't, they weren't pushing free will. I don't know where we get the notion of this. To all who did receive him, who believed, past tense, we've believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born. Now, look at the detail here. How are children of God born? How is it that we believed? We were born not of blood. You're not just automatically a Christian because you're born into a, a, a Christian family. Nor of the will of the flesh or the will of man. It's not the people around you who are like, I just really want you to be a Christian. 
or even you yourself. You were not born again because you said, I want to be a Christian. That's not the cause. The scripture makes it clear. You were born of the will of God. He made you live. You see the flow here? Will of the flesh, will of man, but of God. God's free will makes people live. The promise of the new covenant, this is what we're living in and experiencing right now. By God's grace, we were born in this period of time. Listen to the, the, the prophecy of Ezekiel and the actor in these, the application of this life. I will, God says, this is God speaking, I will give you a new heart, Ian. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will transplant it with what? A heart of flesh, a soft heart, a heart to love me and embrace me. And I will put my spirit within you and I will cause who's the agent of salvation and causal effect. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and obey me. God. God is the actor. He is not saying, I'm going to do everything I can to, to set it up and then hope that you guys do the rest. You have to do all of these things. No, we would be all in the fires of hell. And then Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Paul writing, for by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace, grace means unmerited favor we don't deserve it we didn't do anything to earn this it's just a gift right and this you've been saved by grace through faith and this is not your doing this should just solve the answer it's not your free will that made you saved it's not you didn't do this christian it's the gift of god god saved you and then he adds it's not a result of works and so we've got to be careful here sometimes we, we make too much about the sinner's prayer, what you say or what you do when you are saved. It's not a result of exact words that I say or speak that I am saved. Those words are effect, not cause. If they were cause, then I could take credit. You see the difference here? We've got to be so careful how we think about the sequence of salvation. He is the reason you are in Christ. There is no boast in us. And I would suggest that free will is eliminated. It is non-existent. Not at least in the way that we tend to think sometimes it is there. So let me sum it up with this. It is the free will of God, not man, that is the ultimate reason anyone is saved. And I don't say that just with my own philosophy or out of some ism. Let's be clear. I'm talking verses. These are just verses. And Paul is going to build this out in glorious detail for us in the weeks ahead. So let me challenge you and encourage you. For some of you, this is the first time you're hearing this and you're like, no, that can't be. I know that feeling. I have been there in my own life. Most of us have. This is a new category of reality. I've never thought of God in this way. Good. Good. That means the Word of God is building a new category of accuracy in our thinking of God. 
So long as it comes from his word, it is accurate and true. And we, we have to be careful to put our hand over our head in humility and not stand off on his word and point the finger and say, no, 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 that's not how I understand you, God. I have a problem with that. We humbly say, great are you, Lord. And we worship. We might not understand it all. We certainly have questions. There's lots of questions that will arise and be answered as we move through Romans. But it's important to see these things. Hmm. Let me illustrate it a little more. Saul has a brute squad. He's brought with him the, uh, the bruisers, right? From Jerusalem. He can't do this all himself. Who's going to grab the hair and drag the people? Who's going to beat him? Who's going to put the chains on and haul him back? His brute squad. What do they think of all this stuff that's going on? Hmm. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. Hearing the voice, but seeing no one. You see the difference here? You see, Paul is seeing. They are not. They hear the voice, but they don't see the glory. Saul rose from the ground. Although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. The blindness. He is blinded by God, but he sees like never before. So they led him, brute squad led him, and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight, neither ate, ate nor drank. The reality is, is that at Saul's conversion, there were other people there who heard the words and saw nothing. What was the difference in that equation? Those people? No. It was God who is sovereign, who lands his salvation as he chooses. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And at that point, in, in that point of the story, the brute squad was not chosen to experience salvation. Now maybe as they hung out with Paul and listened to his description of all the things he saw, maybe they heard the gospel and God saved them. But not at that point along the road. They led their boss into Damascus, who was so traumatized, I believe, and deeply processing and praying. I imagine three days of prayer and confession taking place, going through all of the hardness of heart that is now gone, and he's grieving and he's laying it at the foot of the cross. All of the sins he's going to have, the chief of sinners got three days of confession to work through and lay at the cross and find no condemnation because I'm in Christ. Hear the echo of Romans in the story of Paul's conversion. Saul's blindness also brought about a different kind of arrival than he had anticipated. Right? He thought he was going to roll in and start knocking people around and start grabbing those Christians and dragging them off. Now, Think of this. If you're a believer and you're in Damascus, you know he's coming. The rumors have spread. He's coming. The persecution is about to go. And then you see him crest over the hill. And he's on his horse and the brute squad. Oh, everybody run. Hide. And then they're helping him down. And they're like, huh, this guy's not that impressive. This isn't that scary. What's the deal? A humble man, a broken man, Blinded by the glory of Christ, an obsessed man 
with the gospel. Enters the city in a completely different... Who, who can do that? God can do that. You think there were some prayers being answered in Damascus? Absolutely. God ordained prayers. Now, resolute purpose, Acts chapter 9, 10 through 16. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. I love that. Don't you love that? Here I am, Lord. I don't think this happened. Every day. This is a normal dude, just a regular guy. Love Jesus. I'm, I'm yours, Lord. What would you have me do? The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. You can, you can walk on that street to this day. Right there in Damascus. Go on that street to the house of Judas and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying and he has seen in a vision an, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, who gave Saul that vision? God God does this. He's ordaining every single piece of this equation. This is all according to plan. Hmm. But Ananias, well, you, we can identify with this. Ananias says to the Lord, Lord, um, I, 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 you know, I don't want to suggest that maybe you don't know, but I just want to inform you in case you may... I, we've heard from many about this guy, you know, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. He has authority. We know he has authority from the chief priest, from, from Caiaphas himself, to bind all who call on your name. Now, friends, this is a great example of a prayer so carefully prayed. We are never going to inform God of things he just doesn't know. You'll never do that. But it's not wrong to say, uh, Lord, <laughs> let me get this out. This is the situation as I see it. Humbly so, words spoken, but you decide. The Lord said, go. Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. These are amazing words. God's predestined purpose from before there was time was to choose Saul. He elected him in eternity past. He brought him to salvation at the moment that he ordained. And his choice of, of Paul, or Saul, his other name, was to send him to the Gentiles and to kings and to the Jews. He's a chosen instrument. Those words are not misplaced. He could have just said, he's the guy that I'm going to send. No, he is my chosen. I chose him to be an instrument. I play. He goes. He is my instrument. I send him. I am sovereign. He is servant. Do you hear in verse 1? Servant of God. Joyful, happy servant of God. He's going to carry my name to the Gentiles. Friends, this is really good news for us. It's one of the reasons we're here today. It, these are our words. He's coming to the, this would have hit Ananias with like, wow, 
It's going to the Gentiles. Now, we saw in Jerusalem all the languages and the, and the explosion of the church, but this guy is appointed to be an apostle specifically to the Gentiles. And he is called to suffer for my name. To suffer. Now, what is that? Is this payback? Is God saying, listen, I remember all the blood of the martyrs that you spilled. And yes, okay, I forgave you, but I'm going to make you pay. Is that what this is? Is that how God works? No, we know that. All of those sins have been paid in full. He is forgiven. He is righteous in his standing before Christ, before the Father. So what is this then? Listen to how Paul describes it in Colossians 1, 24. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, church, because in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Paul was joyful in his suffering because he knew not that the atoning work of Christ was insufficient or incomplete to save us from our sins, but that he knew the words echoing in his mind, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So when Saul was persecuted and suffered, and he, he was greatly persecuted and suffered greatly, he understood that it was to the glory of Christ that he suffered. And he was filling up the afflictions of Christ and the glory of the sacrifice and the fullness of Christ for all who suffer. Now, radical reversal, Acts chapter 9, 17 to 22. Listen to how this plays out. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road today by which you came has sent me to you so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Imagine Ananias, just a regular Christian man in Damascus, baptizing Saul, the terrorist. Right there. What a day. He would have never forgotten that either. What a privilege. Courage to obey the Lord and be used by him. He regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, taking food. He was strengthened. I was struck by these words, laying hands on him. This is the man who has been actively laying his hands on Christians in violence. And now all of a sudden the role is reversed. And Ananias comes in love and grace and he lays his hands on Saul. And he says these words, Brother Saul. You're my family now. We're brothers in Christ. We share all things in common. It's as if he says in those two words, I forgive you as well. Because of what he's done to forgive me, I forgive you. All is well. We're brothers. Friends, only the gospel can accomplish a salvation so great such that when Paul entered into glory, Stephen greeted him with open arms. Just think of that. What other force or power in this earth 
can accomplish something like that. Only God. Only God. Heaven will be filled with forgiven sinners who cheer upon the arrival of those who have done them great harm. Because they've been forgiven. They're brothers and sisters forever. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. Now that's a different message, isn't it? He was taking people down for making that claim. Now he's the one teaching in the synagogue. Jesus is God. All who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this very same name? Has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Do you know how he did that? The law and the prophets. Just like Leviticus points us to, so Paul pointed the Jews in the same place. It's all about Jesus. From church persecutor and murderer of Christians to church planter and apostle of Jesus Christ. God can do that. What a salvation we celebrate. And so we say, to God alone be the glory. Soli Deo Gloria. To the glory of God alone. Saul didn't accomplish that. God did. God saved him. Praise God. Our response this morning, two things here. God is sovereign in salvation. Let that sink in deep. Say it of your salvation. God is sovereign in my salvation. He saved me. I love to talk about it that way. Tell me about when God saved you. Right? There's a way to think rightly about that. How did God save you? I love that question. It puts the emphasis in the right place. Secondly, no one is beyond the reach of God's sovereign and saving grace. This should be such an encouragement. If God can reach down and save the terrorist named Saul, who can he not save? Who in your family, whose heart is so hard, hates Christ and rails against the church who's beyond his reach no one no one he saved the chief of sinners he can save them he saved me he can save them so it impacts the way we pray it's much the opposite it does not diminish prayer what in the slightest it emboldens prayer this is how we pray Lord, open their eyes, because he can. Change their hearts, because he can, and he does. Lord, stir them to the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. Turn their gaze. Stop them in their rebellion. Overcome their resistance, because he can, and he does. We can pray those prayers for the salvation of those that we love and know. Our proclamation 
It doesn't diminish evangelism in the slightest to think of God the way he saves. It emboldens it. We can preach and proclaim and know, in fact, there is no one upon the hearing of the gospel that is so far gone that God cannot make them live. As we are faithful to proclaim the good words, he is able to make dead men live. And then our praise, which is the goal of it all. It's the goal of it all. Who gets the glory? Forever and ever and ever. God. Alone. No boast in me. What did I contribute? Nothing. He saved me. Let's pray. Oh God, we ascribe all glory and praise to you. We regard you as the God who is sovereign in salvation, and we give you praise for saving this, this terrorist who was shredding your church and appointing him to be a church planter. Oh, you are so good and so powerful and so great and gracious in your love and the application of mercy. Lord, you have done this in Saul's life and you have done it in this room. You've saved me from my sins. When I was utterly unable to save myself, you opened my eyes and changed my heart. You called my name and I saw Christ. And I ran out of that grave. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you for saving those in this place. Oh God, I pray if there would be any here today who don't trust you as Savior Jesus and Lord and obey and delight to do your will, I pray that they would hear even now these words of good news of the accomplishment of their forgiveness through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and that you would stir them and make them live even now. Bring life and light and joy and peace. All through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.